the listener right now who hasn't heard of your story, because it's still relatively new in um, the field, can we talk about your experiences as as a kid and how that led you to writing these books? Sure, Would that sure. be okay? Um, you know what, if I could, I think it'd be helpful to start actually in 2012, um, if Absolutely. I may. Uh, I, re- I retired from the state of Vermont in January of 2012. And um, we have our, my wife and I have our adult kids and grandkids in Dallas. So, you know, we had friends in Vermont, but, you know, we wanted to be near family. So we moved to Dallas. uh, And about October of that year, I'd been retired for eight months. Um, I woke up and I had some pain in my right knee. And it was uh, really difficult to stand or put any pressure on my leg. So something new. I got all my medical care from the VA. So I asked my wife, I said, will you run me to the VA? I need to go to the ER and find out what's going on with my knee. And uh, when I did, I you know, waited my turn. I eventually got, I saw, got in and I saw a physician's assistant. It was very knowledgeable, kind, and went into the x-ray room and she took some films of my right knee and then kind of looked perplexed and came and took another set. And then she asked me if I'd ever suffered from a shrapnel wound. I'm like, no, I never left Missouri. Are you kidding me? No. And she said, uh, um, have you been in an automobile accident or something? I'm like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And she says, well, you have some metal in your knee. You have some anomalous things above and below your right knee. And those x-rays are on terrylovelace.com if anyone is interested. Uh, And uh, above my knee, there's a structure about the size of your fingernail with two wires attached to it that run up my leg. And then below my leg, right in the middle of my calf muscle, is a florette pattern of bone tissue that looks like a little flower. Um, and uh, she said, I'm going to call the radiologist down to take a look at this. So the radiologist wasn't happy to be called down, but he comes in, you know, kind of with an attitude. And, and uh, he looks at my films and uh, he says, well, you've obviously been in an accident of some kind. And he walks over to me, pokes me in the knee and says, you're going to have a scar right here. And I said, no, I don't have a scar right there, doctor. And he says, oh, yeah, it might move as you gain weight or lose weight over the years. But, yeah, you'll, you'll have a scar there. It may have happened in your childhood. You don't remember it. I'm like, look, no way. I've, I've never had skin knees, uh, but that's it. And so he's insists on looking at my knees. I take my pants off again. He looks at my knee. And he looks genuinely stunned. And he says, it's impossible to violate the integrity of the skin and put something like you have that deep into fascia and tissue and there not be a scar. And uh, he said, I can't explain how this thing got into your body. And he said, below your leg, there's a collection of bones. And I hadn't seen the film yet. And I said, well, you know, isn't there supposed to be? And he says, no, no, no. And he pops it up on a view box. And in the middle of my calf muscle is this little florette pattern of uh, of bone. And he said, well, first of all, I've never seen bone spontaneously sprout in the middle of a muscle before, uh, multiple times, and then arrange themselves into a symmetrical pattern. And uh, I said, well, doctor, let me ask you, how many times, how many times have you seen objects like this in the human body? Or how many times have you seen an object like above my knee without there be a, being a corresponding scar? Because the thing below my knee, he said he thought was the t- density of bone tissue and was probably made out of bone. Uh, and he said, you know, 
I've been a radiologist 23 years and I've never seen anything like this. So, and then I realized the, the place above my knee where that fingernail size structure, that square structure resides, um, that's a spot that I was, I was a runner. When I got out of the Air Force in 1979, I started running because I was a student and tended to put on some weight and I wanted to control my weight. So, I mean, I didn't run marathons, but I'd run, you know, three to five miles a day, but I ran almost every day, kind of got hooked on it. I loved it. And uh, I realized that every time I hit the two mile mark in my run, I mean, every single time, the spot above my knee that lay directly above that square structure and to the right would go completely numb. And I could take a, a safety pin with me and delineate the outline of it. It was about the size of a half dollar and it would go completely numb and stay that way for about 30 minutes. And I asked my doctor about it and she called it a histemic reaction and said, you know, if it's not bothering your run, I wouldn't worry about it. And, and, and I didn't worry about it for you know, 40 years. And then I see this x-ray and then I associated this x-ray with my, at least my 1977 abduction and it validated that these things had put their hands on me. And it just it just opened the floodgates. And uh, you know, I I knew then that I that I I couldn't forget this or avoid the topic anymore. I had to I had to confront it. And but now this I, brought it into reality for you. Now there was actual proof of something that you doubted or maybe ignored somewhere for whatever reason why we do that. So uh, how how did you handle that? Like, let's say the, the first week that that sort of hit you, um, what was it like? What was your state like? Uh, not good. Not good, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, I knew that this happened. I mean, I have memories of the event. Uh, but my wife and I discovered pretty quickly that if we discussed it, if we talked about it, I had uh, terrible nightmares. Um, you know, we have two, two children. They're adults now, 40 and 30 six and 37 and um, they never knew about my experience they knew that dad would have you know screaming nightmares twice a year um, but they never knew about this event um, because we just it was just understood we didn't talk about it and uh, like I say this opened the floodgate and I, I wanted to talk about it and I wanted to embrace it and confront it you know uh, and it was, it was, it was, a t I had struggles after, after this uh, epiphany, you know, this reawakening, I had, I had my struggles, I admit, and uh, it was hard to process. And again, it's not just you. I mean, this is a family thing. If it happens to a family member, it's all of you being affected by that. If you're going to be open and talk about it the way that you have and, and write about it the way that you have, the whole family gets exposed to that in, in some, you know, shape, way or form. Uh, so how how did that go when you decide to say okay I'm gonna start talking about it? What were your initial intentions like? Were you thinking I need to write it down and that became a book, or was it more just need to talk about it before anything else happened? I needed to. Uh, I kind of took took the same uh, strategy I would in writing a, a legal brief or writing some kind of uh, technical writing. And that was to, before I spoke about it, before I just, I didn't want to discuss the matter with anybody. I, uh, I did a detailed outline. And then from my outline, I fleshed out 
the book. And that's how it, how it happened. Right. And you had a lot of already these recollections anyways, like whole life full of those experiences. Well, yeah, you know what I did was I, I was smart enough. I was only 22 years old in 1977 when I was abducted. I had my last childhood experience uh, at age 11. So there were, you know, 10 years apiece in between the two where I had no experiences with them whatsoever. Um, and I'd had, uh, I saw a saucer outside my window when I was 11. And then I saw one when I was 1963, when I was eight years old in my backyard. Um, but those were uh, sightings. They weren't anywhere nearly as intimate as, as the abduction scenario was. Right. But fair to say that this activity has been near you or around you for a long time. I mean, since your childhood, obviously, if they're in the backyard, they weren't just chilling out. There's a reason why they were there, right? Yeah. 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 So having that already in mind, like plotting out this, this um, you know, experience of yours. So you're, I just need to put myself into your shoes as a kid. Are you the only one, as far as you know, in your family that's experiencing this? No. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. You know what? Let me, before I go there, let me finish my, my thought. Uh, I drew a blank real quick. And the reason that I had such good recollection isn't that I have a photographic memory far from it, but when, uh, after this camping trip, uh, I felt compelled. I felt it was important to keep a journal and to write down what happened. And I drew a picture of what we saw. And that, that, that picture was drawn pretty much content, contemporaneously with the event. And that's on the terrylovelace.com too. And I, um, I stored all of this information in a, in a notebook and my, my wife was able to go to a storage locker that we have still up in Michigan and retrieve the, those, there were actually two notebooks. And that gave me the foundation to write the book in so much detail. So let's talk about this experience that happened to you in 1977. 1977 is a very important year. A lot of abductions have taken place between 1975 and 77, uh, yours being one of them. Uh, and also 1977 is the year that Star Wars came out. So it's funny that we had, you know, a, a Star Wars boom, but at the same time, there was also a UFO boom that took place. I just don't think that it got as much popularity because Star Wars was what the hype was all about in 77, right? Yes, yes. Steven Spielberg's uh, um, Close Encounters movie came out in November of 77. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and uh, that had, I, I, I couldn't see that movie for 10 years. Uh, and then when I saw it, uh, there's a part at the end where there are some little guys walking down a ramp with fog around them. Yeah. And it's, it's a brief scene. It's probably 10 seconds or less. And, uh, I just, I just wigged out. I just, that yeah. was, that was hard for me to watch. Uh, oh, it's the same thing with the communion book, right? That stupid cover. Oh, Whitley's book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I hated that book as a kid. It always creeped me out. I always wanted to like, it was all the books around it. I would take out from the library, but never it. Like I just could it just creeped me out as a kid. I'm like, no, that is for when I'm older, <laughs> as far as I was concerned. You know, I, I know Whitley Streber. I met him at uh, Pine Ridge, uh, Lakota Reservation, at an event in 2019. And I, I got to know him over a week. And I asked him, I said, man, where did you come up with this photograph on the uh, front cover? And he says, 
It's what they look like. <laughs> I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. facts are facts. So um, do you want to talk about this 1977 occurrence that, that sure. basically shaped your future? Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. You know what? It was a life altering event. It really was. Uh, I was 22 at the time. My friend Tobias was 23. We both worked as um, worked at Whiteman Air Force Base. We were both NCOs. Uh, we lived, we were new, both newly married. We lived in um, housing on the base. Uh, and you were right, it was a nuclear base, Whiteman Air Force Base. Uh, at the time, it had a squadron of uh, Minutemen II ICBM missiles spread out all over the countryside. Oh, wow. And then it also had um, a squadron of nuclear armed B 52s with the KC 135 tankers, you know, the flying gas stations right behind them to give them enough gas to get across the polar cap and then maybe oh, get geez. back to whatever's left, you know? The big suckers, yeah. Yeah, they were, they were, they were, I've been in one. They're fun. They're interesting. Yeah. Uh, they're frightening too. But so uh, we, uh, we worked together uh, the night shift uh, as first responders, as EMTs. We drove an ambulance. And one night, uh, my friend Toby walks up to me and says, Hey, man, and I got, I got an idea. Let's go camping. And I'm like, You know, are you nuts? I mean, I, I was a city kid. I'd never been camping in my life. And I knew Toby was from Flint and I had, pretty strongly suspected he'd never been camping in his life. So, you know, I'm like, what's up with this, man? And he says, well, you know, you're an amateur photographer. You want to photograph wildlife and, you know, there's no place you can use your camera on the base. And he's right about that. You know, you can't, you can't use a camera on the base. So um, made a good point. And he wanted to watch the night sky because he was an amateur astronomer and was just eaten up with the night sky. I mean, he knew he could point out galaxies. He could point out, he could time satellites when they'd come over. Uh, wow. And he was just, uh, he was a brilliant kid too. We had a uh, extension university from Central Missouri State that gave classes on base. And he took every every physics class they offered and aced them all. He was just a brilliant mathematician, just totally opposite from me. And uh, so he wanted to go down there to watch the sky without light pollution. And he'd heard through a friend of a friend of a guy that fished that there was a plateau uh, back in the woods. And we went down there with the intention of finding this plateau. I thought it'd be a cool place to set up a camp and take pictures of wildlife, eagles and likes, the like, whatever we could see. And at night, he'd have clearly no light pollution whatsoever and an elevated position to, to watch the night sky. It'd be, that'd be really cool. Yeah. That's a prime spot. Yeah. So, but it was a six and a half hour drive, but you know what? It, it's like, it's like he said, cause I balked at that. And it's like, he said, you know, sometimes this isn't the journey half of the, uh, in the road trip kind of half of the adventure, you know? And, and he was right. He was, he was a good salesman, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah he was, he was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were, we became obsessed with this idea cause it was a couple months before we could get the four day weekend and get everything lined up and, and make the trip. Right. And it gave you something to look forward to anyways. Right? It, it did. And, you know, we were kind of the nerds of the squadron, you know, and you know how, how, how 
a couple, I don't think nerds was in the vocabulary then, but you know how a couple of nerds plan out anything, you know, we, we, we make exhaustive lists and, uh, yeah. you know, we went to, we went to the uh, base library to see if we can find a book on, on camping, you know, and of course they're, they're, you know, found a 1958 Boy Scout manual that told us how, you know, <laughs> taxidermy skills and how to tie nautical knots. And we're like yeah. frustrated. And finally we approached one of the outdoorsy types in the medical squadron and said, Hey man, we're going to go camping. What, what do we need to know? And he looks at us like we're stupid and says, look, go to Kmart, buy a tent for 10 bucks, take two inflatable air mattresses, swipe some blankets from the hospital, take sunscreen and take um, DEET and uh, have your wives pack a bunch of sandwiches and a couple of beers and some chips, uh, hot dogs, and uh, you just go. It ain't rocket science. So that kind of became yeah. our motto. This ain't rocket science. And uh uh, so we made we made the trip in June of 1977. Um, it was a, sa- a Saturday, I believe. It was June 11th. I'm going from memory, but I think that's right. And we uh, we drove to Devil's Den State Park, just across the Arkansas border, in the northwest part of Arkansas. And uh, we didn't know it when we made the trip. I wish we had known it that Devil's Den has a, a long dark history. Hmm. It really does. Uh, when I wrote the book in 2017, I wanted to. 2016, 2017, I wanted to decide out, I wanted to find out how it got the name devil associated with it. And uh, I, uh, I did some research and I found that there were two Native American tribes that laid claim to that piece of land, the Cato and the Cajino, Cato and Cajino tribes. And I managed to speak with a Cato woman who was a, a shaman, a medicine woman who lived in Russellville, Arkansas, not all that far from Devil's Den. Right. And she agreed to talk to me. And I said, you know, how did, uh, where did this name Devil's Den come from? How, how did it, how did it get that, that name? And she said, oh, she says, it's, it's cursed land. And I said, for how many years has it been cursed land? She says, well, I don't really think in terms of years, I think in terms of generations, but I can tell you, it's many, many, many generations, you know, hundreds of years. It's as long as our oral tradition goes back. And she said, it's a place that we don't camp at, we don't fish at, we don't hunt at, we can transit through it. We'll, we'll, we'll cut through it if we need to get to point A to point B and it's in, the, in between. But uh, she said, we won't, we won't camp there. So I, I was curious about that. And I had an archeologist, uh, well, I had a friend from Michigan State University who was an archeologist who put me in touch with a guy who did uh, uh, archaeology? He and his wife were a team down in the Ozark region of Missouri, southern Missouri, northern Arkansas. And uh, he told me, uh, they told me that they'd done excavations all throughout the Ozark region. They found Neolithic tools dating back 9,000 years, and then Native American tools dating back, you know, hundreds or a couple thousand years, all around Devil's Den. But in the area that's known as Devil's Den State Park or that particular area, they've never found a single piece of worked flint, not remnants of a campfire, nothing. Wow. And I asked, how unusual is that? And he said, it's, it's very unusual. Given the natural resources there, it's very unusual. Well, it kind of gives validity to the fact that for generations are like, uh-uh, we're not going there. Yeah. Well, you know, David Polites, uh wrote the, the series Missing 411 about people that disappear under mysterious circumstances in state and 
federal uh, parks. And the fourth volume in his Missing 411 series is called The Devil is in the Details. And David Pilates is kind of a data-driven guy like I am. You know, I, I, I tend to lay things out on Excel spreadsheets to look for commonalities. And he had done the same. And when he did, he discovered that uh, parks, regions, all these places where people disappear under really mysterious circumstances. I mean, they weren't, they weren't uh, you know, victims of predation by wild animals. They didn't, uh, you know, they weren't abducted. We don't, we don't think they were kidnapped by uh, serial killers. Uh, they were, they were vanished. Uh, and in very weird ways as well. In yeah. very weird ways. Yeah. So he on the spreadsheet, he discovered that parks, lakes, um, places that people visit that have the name Devil, Devil's Den, Devil's Clay, Devil's, you know, Den, uh, have a much higher incidence of people that go missing than do people that don't have, pardon me, than do parks uh, that don't have the name Devil or Diablo in the name at all. So, you know, that's kind of a kind of a weird thing to think about. Well, a good foreboding, like pay attention to, you know, if it's like Devil's Lake, you find out there's like 12 people that de- drown there every year. Just don't go to Devil's Lake. Like, Seriously. It lives up to its name, right? Yeah. Seriously. You know? And so so we made, the, I, 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 I digress. We, we made the trip. We got down there and, and we agreed that we would dodge the ranger station and we would dodge the, um, you know, the campground altogether because we wanted to stay on this on this plateau if we could find it. And the plateau, reportedly, the top of the plateau um, was level with the treetops. So unless you're right up on the thing, you can't see it. Right. And that was the way that it was. And we didn't, we, we drove, we took um, paved road until it turned to gravel, until it turned to, you know, just two ruts in the road. And it really wasn't terrain for a 66 Impala. It really was more for a <laughs> Range Rover. <laughs> Let's go camping. Um, I love it. And, you know, if it didn't have such a bad ending. There would have been a funny, uh, yeah, funny story. Yeah, it would have been. I mean, it's like the wheels fell off somewhere along the way. And uh, what was amazing was, is my friend called out because there were all kinds of left turn, right turn, go here, go there. I had no idea where we're going. Now, I do give Toby credit. He had an unerring sense of direction, which I don't have. But uh, we drove until we came to a chain across the road with this really sternly worded, keep out, do not enter, no hunting, no camping, no fishing, no hiking, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I said, well, I guess we got to turn around. And my buddy's like, no, no, man, I got this. And he hops out of the car and um, there were two posts on the road. And what they'd done is they'd strung a a chain across the road and then taken a padlock and looped it, locked it and made like a noose. And draped it over the post on the opposing side on a nail, you know. Oh, so you know the park yeah. rangers. I mean, they don't have to find fumble through keys and stuff. If they want to get in, they just go and pick it up and drop it, drive in, put it back. I guess. Right, right. I guess yeah. was the rationale. So we were like, woohoo! You know, we felt like we were uh, Lewis and Clark, right? We're we're in, and uh, and we drove in, and um, this is where things got a little bit spooky uh, in that. To me, everything looked the same. I mean, there's nothing out there but but trees, you know, um, and dirt road, gravel road, or yeah, dirt road in front of us. And we had to make a left or right turn a dozen times. And any one of those wrong turns could have taken us 
God knows where. Yeah. And uh, we were driving for probably 45 minutes and we drove right up to it. And uh, it was it was amazing because this plateau is in the middle of nowhere and, and it goes the, the road up is, is not quite vertical, but it, it's pretty close. Right. And uh, we uh, we drove up and this meadow opened up in front of us and it was just gorgeous. I mean, it was just a, a really cool place. Uh, it had, uh, you know, t- tall grass about halfway up, halfway to my knee. And, uh, you know, there were late blooming wildflowers and stuff. And it was just, it was just gorgeous. And we were like, you know, high five and just thought this is the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Set up you our made camp. It. Yeah, we made yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> made it. yeah. And we, we set up a camp and uh, I wanted this camp. I wanted to camp right in the middle of the meadow. And my friend's like, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's set up on the edge over here by the tree line. And it was very insistent on that. And uh, so I caved and we did. And uh, we had some, well, we did all the fun stuff you do when you're camping and it was all new to us. So, you know, we, we had a pretty good time. Uh, they, uh, I'm gonna cut through a bunch of stuff. There was some weirdness where we uh, fell asleep on a rock taking a rest after a hike. Um, but I don't have time to go into that really. Let me focus on um, the abduction. We got back to our campsite. We'd walked probably, you know, eight miles or something. But, you know, I was 22. He was 23. We were in good shape. Uh, and it just felt good. I mean, you know, stretch our legs after this long ride. And uh, we set up camp and had the tent in back of us, you know, two air mattresses, a campfire in between us. And, uh, you know, we made a fire. Uh had some hot dogs, you know, and we're kicked back on these air mattresses. And this is about nine o'clock at night. And we're, uh, you know, we're just chatting. We're just talking. And I noticed that, and this sounds cliche. It it really does. um, But I swear to God that it's true. And I've heard other people tell me that they experienced it right before something untoward happened to them. And um, just a few minutes before, I was having trouble being heard across the campfire because of the crickets, the tree frogs, all the things in the forest that make noise. Right. Because you guys are in the bush, right? Like in the middle of nowhere. So there would be a lot of it. Man, we are, we are in the middle of nowhere. We are in a remote location. Um, you know, if you, it's still remote today. Uh, as a matter of fact, just real quick, it, we found out it's not actually in Devil's Den State Park. It's actually a sliver of federal land that's owned by the Bureau of Land Management and leased to a private individual. So it is federal land. Hmm. And that do not that do not enter, that keep out, no trespassing, chain across the road was the boundary between Devil's oh. Den State Park and that federal land. And that plateau that had the I didn't bother looking for the plateau through Google Earth because I thought what's the use? You know, that place is going to be covered with 40 year old mature trees by now, but it's not. It's, oh, really? It's still, I don't know if I sent you images of that. You did. Yeah. I saw the, uh, the ones you sent me there. Yeah. That, that somebody goes up there with a tractor and cuts the grass on that. And it's still just a dirt road up there. So they go up there with a tractor. Yeah. I got a guy, I have a follower on Facebook who's a landscaper down in Alabama 
And he says that when he blows up the image, because you, you, you can enlarge the image, he can see tractor tires and evidence of them using what's called a brush hog to clear cut the thing. So here, huh. here for 50 years, the U.S. government pays for the gas to cut the grass and keep the, the trees from growing on top of this plateau in the middle of nowhere. That's a lot of gas to burn. Uh, for, yeah. for what? For what reason? Yeah, keep out, keep out. We really like our grass. Don't don't touch it. That's weird. Yeah, that's really weird. Just the endeavor, like you're right, that would cost money. It's not just the gas, but the employee that has to go up there with the tractor has got to be paid to do that. And what, per- what I can't imagine what purpose it serves. But yeah. Anyway, so so things went dead quiet. That's that's the point of the of of, of the story here. And it unnerved me. It really did. And I asked my friend, you know, of course, like, you know, like he's going to know, but I asked him anyway, uh, is this normal? It got really quiet out here. And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it, man. He says, you know, we've been laughing and cutting up. We just quieted them. They'll be back. You watch, they'll come back. Don't worry about the bugs. And uh, so I I tried not to. and then a short while later, minutes later, he's got his head turned to the left to the Western horizon. And he asked me, he said, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I'm like, you know, what are you talking about? Because, I mean, we were in the middle of nowhere. There were no lights. I mean, the only thing that we could see was on the Eastern horizon, a dim glow that came from the campsite that was some miles away. Right. But other than that, there was nothing out there. So I, I took a step I, stepped, I stood up and took a step back because his torso was in the way for me to see it. And on the western horizon, just above the horizon, there was a, a there were three bright stars in a tight little triangle. And they were sitting too far above the horizon to have been like a train or a parking lot or something. Right. Um, and they were absolutely still. And I'm thinking, what could this be? And... Uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe these are lights of an airplane. I mean, we knew we knew a little bit about aircraft. We couldn't think of any aircraft that would have that triangular uh, configuration of lights, but it could be some kind of aircraft headed directly in our direction, and we can't perceive its motion until it varies its course by a degree or two. Right. So we, we just keep watching it, and then um, what it did was it rotated like it was on an axis, and the three stars did about a 120 degree turn to the right and it aligned the base of the triangle parallel with the horizon. Uh-huh. And as soon as it did that, it started to climb up with the apex of the triangle pointed up. Oh, wow. So, and this is where things get stranger yet. And that, you know, I had been kind of uh, rattled by the quiet of the place. And all of that anxiety and all of that uh, fear actually left me. And I felt this feeling of calm wash over me. And, but it was a weird, weird, weird feeling. I felt, um, I won't say apathetic, but I'll say I was mildly disinterested. I mean, I felt like I was an observer rather than a participant. I felt dissociated somewhat. And uh, my friend was in the same frame of mind, I'm sure. 
because our conversation was limited to, I think he said, it's really moving now or something along those lines. But other than that, there's no conversation between us. And, you know, human nature should, I mean, I think our emotions were muted. I mean, two guys seeing this stuff, especially when you've never been spent the night in the woods before, you know, human nature would be either panic or some level of fear or even curiosity or a dialogue between us like, what is that? What do you think it is? But there was none of that. Right. And I think that really speaks to the level of influence that these things have over us. Because I think we were under their influence at that moment. That's when it began. Now, do you think that what you experienced then is what the bugs were maybe experiencing as well? They just caught on to it or had the effect before you and, and um, uh, Tobias had the effect? I think that's exactly right. I think that's what happened. I think they perceived it before we did. Just like um, when I when I worked for the government, I lived in American Samoa for uh, for five, almost six years, and it's an island in the South Pacific. And we had chickens, you know, and uh, we didn't have them in coops. They just ran around and we fed them, and they were actually they were Samoan pest control, is what they were because yeah. they'd eat centipedes and and you know noxious insects and um we got up one morning and the chickens weren't at the back door because normally every morning we get up we feed the chickens and i thought that's odd and about eight minutes later there was an 8.1 earthquake 11 miles off island september 30th uh 2009 oh wow it was uh Incredible. Yeah, it was. So we got out of the house and uh, there was a tsunami afterwards and killed a whole bunch of people. And But the point of the exercise was exactly the point you were making. And that was, that you know, animals, I think, perceive danger. And I think that's exactly what happened. I think the bugs perceived on some kind of maybe collective intelligent level. I don't know. The same way our chickens perceive danger. And uh, yeah. It- yeah, because I remember um, seeing it was at uh, an episode of uh, Skinwalker Ranch, but they were showing just an object flying off in the distance, but a cow quite far away from this object reacted to it right away as if it, like, it knew that this thing was there. Eventually they found the cow dead later on, but the animals do sense these things, which is interesting because it's not just now a human experience this is actually tangible that it's observable it becomes an observable now that nature itself reacts to these things as much as we react to them so it gives them a little bit more validity as far as i'm concerned it absolutely validates the experience i i couldn't agree more it started to move up into the sky that's when we felt that sedation and we watched it climb into the sky um we just saw the three points of light and as it got high into the sky, uh, it was a beautiful night. There were just a trillion stars out. And the sky itself had a, a light blue glow to it. But the uh, area that was inside that triangle was jet black. Hmm. So we knew we were looking at one solid object. Besides, as it got closer, the points of light expanded, but always stayed equidistant to one another. So we knew we were looking at a single solid object. And right. as it went past fields of stars, they would blink out until it had passed and blink back on. And it 
it reached this ceiling. And I don't know, I'm guessing this is just an assumption on my part, maybe 10,000 feet. And then it changed orientation where it was going straight up where we could see the three points of light. It did this and leveled off. So it were, was parallel with the horizon and then started a glide plane down. And we could see that it was coming in our direction because we could see three lights on a parallel plane, you know, right. maybe the nose dipping down sometimes as it, as it descended. And what was crazy was it did this somersault thing where the apex of the triangle would dip down and turn around and do a complete somersault. Uh, and it did that twice. And I had the feeling, and I don't know where this came from, but I really had the feeling that it was doing that for our benefit. But somehow that was to communicate that, look, this thing is in out of control. Uh, you know, we're moving with purpose. This is, this is with intent. Right. And it, it got low and it hit the horizon at about 5,000 feet above our elevation. And then it dimmed the lights on the points of the triangle. And it just cruised in and it stopped directly over the meadow at about 3,000 feet. So all we could see was the underneath of the thing. And again, no fear, uh, no anxiety, um, no appropriate emotion whatsoever. And we're just like, kick back on these air mattresses and watch yeah. them. So it, shortly after it came to a stop, there came a, a beam of light from underneath this thing in dead center that was uh, a white beam of light, a column of light about maybe six inches in diameter. And it had this um, visible white quality to it. Like if you've ever seen a high, a high power searchlight, like on a lake or something cutting through fog, yeah. you see that column of light. Yeah, That's exactly what this was like, except there was no fog. Huh. So, and that landed, I mean, it just popped on and it landed right in the middle of our campfire. And that stayed there for about 60 seconds, I'm guessing 30 to 60 seconds. And then it just turned off like someone hit a switch. And then immediately after there came this uh, laser-like light. Now lasers were fairly new in 1977. I'd, I'd seen them on TV and in movies, but I, I'd never seen one in real life. And this was about the diameter of a pencil. And it was a bluish purple, weird color, bluish purple. And it would land in the, in the middle of our campground for like a tenth of a second and then reappear in another area. So, and then in another, so that in a second, it might be 10 different spots all around oh, wow. the campsite. So it gives us illusion that it's dancing all over the campsite. Right, right. And like was, a Pink Floyd concert or something like that, right? Bingo. That's it. Yeah. yeah. So it, it hit everything that, that we brought, you know, everything that wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't uh, natural to the surroundings. Uh, like it struck me in the chest a couple of times, never felt a thing. I know it hit my friend. It hit our cooler or his cooler, Toby's cooler. It hit a, his backpack, the tent, my car. Um, and it, it never touched the grass. It just focused on us. Huh. And I had the feeling this thing's scanning us. I mean, it's checking us out. And that lasted a couple minutes. And then it abruptly turned off. So are you still feeling numb at this point or are you starting to freak out? Oh, no, no freaking out. We're feeling numb. We're feeling sedated. 
uh, as I said, it's a, it was a dissociative type feeling. It was like we were removed from it. Gotcha. And you know what's crazy was is you know it wasn't only quiet; it was still. And by still, I mean that we'd had a nice little breeze before this started, and now the campfire was the flames were going straight up. There was no breeze whatsoever. And I remember while this is going on, I'm looking at the tent, pardon me, the tree in back of our tent. And I'm looking at the leaves and I'm, I'm thinking one of these leaves should move, you know, even a millimeter or two, there has to be some motion. Right. It can't be that still. And I never saw a leaf move. And that, kind of made me, uh, I can't say uncomfortable because I'm in that sedated mode, but I, I really made me question, am I looking at reality or what? Uh, and, you know, in retrospect, I, I wonder how did this thing, given its size, and I'll get to that, but given its size, how could this thing not be seen by everybody at the campsite, park rangers, and I mean, people in five counties? I just don't get it. Uh, but it wasn't. Or at least no, there's no record of it that I could find. Right. The fact that it's black, too, or that you can't see the craft if the lights are uh, parallel or, uh, or just not parallel, I should say, um, you know, equal to the horizon. Nobody knows it's there. Yeah, but still, you know, it, the way it climbed up into the sky and descended, I thought would have been noticed by somebody. And right. uh, later on, well, I'll get to that, but. That, that feeling of sedation that we felt abruptly changed. After, just shortly after this laser show stopped, that feeling of sedation um, transitioned into sleepy. Now I wasn't, I wasn't feeling sedated. I was still feeling, um, well, maybe sedated because I had no fear, you know, no fear, no anxiety, no nothing but I was suddenly sleepy. I mean, I was so sleepy. If you've ever ever been to a point in your life where you've been doing something and you're suddenly like, man, all I want to do is go to sleep. That's what yeah. this was like, man. All I wanted to do was go to sleep. I wanted to go to that tent and go to sleep. Dead tired. Yeah. Dead tired. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it was trouble keeping my eyes open and my buddy was ahead of me he was already walking toward the tent as i'm getting up you know i'm dragging this air mattress behind me i don't bother to take off my boots which is important later i don't bother to take off my shirt wearing a t-shirt and jeans i just threw this air mattress in and i just jumped on top of it and i was out uh, i don't think i was asleep i think i was unconscious hmm. and that's somewhere between then and when we woke up is when they took us and I had no idea how long we were gone. Uh, both of our watches, uh, we had good mechanical wind-up watches, which were kind of the standard of the day. And, you know, a good watch was integral to the job of being an EMT. So we, we had good watches. Uh, and we kept them synchronized for going to accidents or whatever and, and writing reports. So um, my, my watch stopped at 2.40. Toby stopped at 2.41 on the nose. And those watches never worked again. Oh, really? I wish I'd saved mine. Mine was an Elgin watch that was like eight months old and uh, should not have quit working. So huh. uh, I woke up some hours later and I have no idea what time it was because my watch was broken. But it was still dark outside. Uh, later on, we would, we would 
find out that we were about an hour from sunrise. Uh, but at the time we had no idea. And I woke up to these incredible lights flashing through the canvas of the tent. And they were as bright as like an old school flash camp, flash bulb was, you know, the kind that they used to use back in the 60s, 70s. Right, right. Yeah, you know, when they would take pictures. Yeah, and you'd, see, you'd blink and see the blue dot in front of your eyes. Yeah, yeah. Burned yeah. into your retina for an hour. Yeah. Look this way over here, Mrs. Monroe. Over here. Right, yeah, yeah, that's I it. Gotcha. <laughs> that's it. These were the same intensity because, you know, it was dark inside that tent until these lights would flash. And I mean, it lit up the inside of that tent like a, like a you know, baseball game at night. I mean, it right. was just insane. And I wake up and I don't have my wits about me. And I'm thinking, where am I? Oh, yeah, I'm camping with Toby. That's right. And uh, I kind of sit up and I see these lights and I'm trying to logically make sense of what's going on. And I'm thinking, this is a park ranger's truck. These are the overhead flashing lights of a park ranger's truck. Cause they were kind of yellow and orange and white. And um, I could hear this. I refer to it in the book as a droning sound. I heard this uh, mechanical noise um, that was um, not so much loud, not so much auditory even, uh, but more the kind of tone that you felt in your chest, kind of like a right. big bass speaker, you know, at, at, at a concert or if you or like standing next to a big piece of industrial machinery, you know, it's right. got just the, that humming that you feel the vibrations. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's what I felt. And I thought, you know, wait a minute, you know, this park rangers running a generator in the back of his truck. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And I sit up and I'm, I'm really trying to get out of this mental fog and I look down and my boots are unlaced. Now, I would never have done that. I would have gone to sleep with my boots off. I would have gone to sleep with my boots on, which is what I did. But I'd never leave my boots like that. I mean, you know, if if they teach you how to t- take care of your feet in the military. And I mean, right. if I had to run out of the tent, I didn't want to be tripping over my shoelaces. Um, so I was sure that I'd lace them up. But that didn't frighten me. I wasn't frightened yet. I was confused. Uh, and actually annoyed uh, for some reason. And I took my boots off and my socks were on sideways. And it still didn't, it still didn't sink in that I'd been undressed and redressed. But I put my socks and boots on correctly and I turned my attention to my friend who's to my left. And he's on his knees and he's peering out of the flap of the tent on his side. And uh, he'd been crying because in these flashes of white light, uh, he was African-American and his skin was very dark and the tears, the saline in the tears would fluoresce against his skin tone. And I could see these track, this white track down the side of, right side of his face. Uh, and that scared me because I couldn't imagine what would make, what would make this man cry, yeah. you know, because I don't work with him for three years. He wasn't a- Highly intellectual, right? Highly intellectual, but also, um, you know, uh, not in fear of, you know, climbing into an aircraft on fire to pull somebody out. I mean, you know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't easily frightened and uh, something had upset him. And I asked him, I said, Toby, man, what is it? Is it park rangers? What's out there? And he, he said, I think they're still out there. And I'm like, who's still out there? And he doesn't answer me. So I get on my knees and I pull back the flap on my side of the tent and I look outside. And what had happened was this thing that was 3,000 feet over our heads when, it went, when we went to bed had descended 
And now it's just 30 feet above the floor of the meadow. Oh, wow. So thankfully we're offset to the side. So this thing isn't hanging over our top of our heads. Uh, and it also gave us a view of the side of the thing. And we could see for the first time the actual depth of it. Um, because in, in, in no way was it a single story structure like the ICB3 or whatever they claim that. The TR3B or whatever. Yeah. 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 I can never remember. Uh, this, this was like a five story tall office building. It was that hmm. deep. And curiously, if you read, if you read David Marler's book, David is kind of the uh, uh, expert on triangles. Um, there was a woman in the Hudson Valley who saw in 1977, saw what we saw and described it as five stories deep. Hmm. So um, whatever we saw, someone else saw and described too. I could say, uh, and this thing didn't make a single sound. Like just, it's that huge. Just that droning sound, just that droning noise that I mentioned earlier. That's the only sound we ever heard. And gotcha. The um, the reason the brights the lights were so intense was because this thing had descended to thirty feet. So now we can only see one side of it. Of course, that's a triangle, so we can't see um, more than one side. Maybe a little bit of another, but. Um, these lights were now closer to the ground. So when they flash, they were really intense. And when they would flash, I could see that there were what I thought to be kids, maybe a dozen or 15. I didn't count them. I probably should have. I saw these kids walking around the meadow, what I thought were kids. And I asked Toby, I said, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night? And he said, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. They're not human beings. Look at them. And he said, don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And as soon as he said that, man, it was like flipping a switch. And I saw flashes in my mind's eye of being actually being in this thing. Now, I, I've never, ever had a clear linear memory of what happened to us in there. But all I have is bits and pieces. Um, but had he not said anything? Do you think that you would have remembered any of this later on? Is it the fact that after he said something after it was just so fresh that it like jarred something that whatever it is that they did to you? Yeah, I, th I think that's it. And you know, that that's worried me over the years because I think that, you know, I think people that have this kind of experience, um, but are un unfortunate enough to never have it come to the surface and they have it buried in their subconscious. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in psychology. So, I mean, I, I think along those terms, I'm no psychologist by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I, I think that if that's buried in your subconscious, I think that it can trickle up over the years that follow and maybe manifest in unhealthy ways, you know, yeah. like alcoholism, drug abuse, or, or madness. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm grateful that I know what happened to me um, yeah. because I think it'd be very tough to live without any memory and wonder why am I having, having these screaming nightmares and what's wrong with me? Right. So right after he says that, uh, Tobias turns to you and says, you don't remember, they just took us and they hurt us. What What is it that runs through your mind exactly at that moment? What, what are those flashbacks? Uh, I have several flashbacks, uh, but at that moment, I remembered being nude and standing in the middle of a, this huge open atrium. And this, I don't understand. I don't know if they took us aboard this thing and it took us to another craft or if 
maybe their physics is different than ours because the inside of this craft was so much bigger than it was from the outside. I mean, from the outside, it looked like a medical building from the inside. I mean, it was like being in an NFL stadium. Oh, wow. It was, it was that large. And I don't, I don't get that, but that's what I saw. Everything in it was uh, gray, white, or stainless steel. I saw the little gray guys walking around all over the place. And I have a theory about them. Um, And I've said this and people have corrected me and said, no, 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 I saw them too. They weren't like that. They were like this. Well, you know, I, I'll throw out there that there's probably, you know, two or more species of whatever these things are. And, uh, you know, you may have seen a different gray thing than what I saw. So all I can, all I can do is share my objective experience of what I saw. And I think, I don't think these things are living and I don't think they're sentient in the way that you and I are. I think they're, I I refer to them in my book as like worker bees or drones. Uh, I think they're just task or, but I think they're, I think they're manufactured. I do. Oh, really? I do. I I think there may be artificial intelligence, quantum computing, uh, like I said, AI, nanotechnology. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't. I don't think they're they're just task oriented and running all over the place doing whatever they're supposed to be doing. That was the memory that I had, and that chilled me. And that that really took my fear level from about a two and a half or a three to ten. Right. And um, and I was very scared. And we watched these little guys walking around in the meadow. And a uh, another light kicked on from underneath this thing, and it was a. It was a cylinder about 30 feet in diameter. It was about as wide as this thing was tall off the floor of the meadow. And it had that same white light quality to it. So it was visible. And uh, as soon as that clicked on, all of these little guys, which had paired up into like twos and threes and are just kind of meandering around this meadow. And, and we're scared to death. We're going to cough or sneeze and they're going to come check us out. And right. you know, we have no way of knowing they're long done with us. Right. Right. So uh, this light kicks on and they all start walking. They're, they're not running or hurrying, but they all start meandering toward this light. And when they get to the light, they step into it in pairs or in threes. And they would totally pixelate out and dissolve in about 20 seconds. And they were hmm. gone. And they were gone. And uh, like a Star Trek teleportation type effect. Yeah, I remember that yeah. from the sixties. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I've never been a I've never been a uh, science fiction fan either before or after. But um, it was just like that. Yeah, because I remember watching that. And so, have you? So this experience happened to you. You've never had this happen to you, like when you were a kid. You saw a saucer in your backyard twice, or you've had at least two events as a child, but you've never had it this close of an encounter before. Is this like your first time, right? Well, no. Um, between the ages of four and nine, um, in Incident at Devil's Den, I explained that um, four little monkeys, which I know this sounds insane. But when I was asleep at night in our home in St. Louis, Missouri, four little monkeys would step out of the uh, shadows. And they were, um, at first I thought they were kind of comical, you know, and they would step out of the shadows. There were always four of them. 
And they would always ask me, you know, you want to come play with us? Come on, play with us. And the one nearest to the head of my bed would always hold out a paw, a monkey paw. And I see them dressed in little red jackets like circus monkeys have. Okay. And I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, number one, I'm sure they weren't monkeys. I'm sure, number two, that they weren't wearing little red jackets. Right. Uh, like a projection that they were giving you. Absolutely. And, and I've had lots of people, you know, I, I put an email address in the back of Incident at Devil's Den. And I said, look, I'm not a therapist or a doctor, but if you've had an experience like mine or, or saw something you can't explain and you want to tell me about it, write to me, I'll write you back. And I thought I might have 100 people email me, right? And uh, to date, I have over 1,700 emails from people. Hmm. And uh, people tell me that they saw orbs and owls. And uh, uh, one kid uh, saw lives in El Paso, saw a raccoon. Uh, matter of fact, he's in the back of my second book, uh, The Reckoning. I got 30 stories from people that, that wrote and told me their stories. I, I wrote back to them, established a dialogue, and got permission to publish their stories. But this kid told me that this orb of white light would come through the screen of his, they lived in a mobile home in El Paso, would come through the screen and then manifest into this two foot tall possum that stood upright like a man, had a tail like a possum, had greasy fur like a possum uh, and spoke to him telepathically. And he could never remember what they talked about but they'd have long conversations and he considered this thing to be his friend. Hmm. And, um, but sometimes, just like with me, sometimes he'd get scared and he'd scream and his mom would come in and, you know, it'd be, what, a possum again? Yeah, possum again. So she ended up putting a couch in line with the kid's bedroom door and leaving the bedroom door open at night. And uh, she woke up one night uh, well, there are two events. She woke up one night and saw a white orb go through the window. And then she instantly fell back to sleep. Hmm. And then a couple of weeks later, she woke up and her kid was screaming, mommy, mommy. And uh, the white orb came through the screen and she saw it manifest into a possum. And it looked in her direction and she sat up on the sofa and they locked eyes for a moment and then boom, back into an orb of light straight out the window. So, you know what I think? I think that these things can manifest in a way that they think that child will find the most benign. Yeah. And, and somehow, like if you think about it in your toddler years, you would have seen pictures of monkeys wearing vests, you know, like that's just something that you would have seen. So they just grab something that you had some sort of familiarity with. You know. Yeah, this one woman told me she saw Disney characters in her room. Right. You know, and this this thing he was told, the one nearest my the head of my bed would hold out this monkey paw. And I remember that very clearly. And uh, but in my nightmares for 40 years, what would happen was it would speak to me telepathically and would hold out a uh, but instead of a paw, it was just a gray arm with these four ugly gray fingers. And for some reason that just today, if I had that dream, I just flip out. Right. Because maybe what you really were seeing is now coming through in your dreams and that facade that they put forward, that screening, whatever that they do, uh, that facade, like you were able to see through it, but you're just as an adult now able to process it. Yeah. They were masked. They wore masks. Uh, yeah. 
and and I saw them as masks. I saw them wearing white masks, kind of almost like a paper plate over their face. They had big yellow eyes, uh, and they had a, on a painted grin. Uh, and that's what I saw. Um, you know, weird. I, I also think that these things, they not only appear in the manner that they think the child will find most uh, benign, I think that they appear in a way that when a kid says what he saw, it'll be so outrageous that no one will believe him or her. Yeah, good point. You know, my, you know, my parents, you know, what do you think, monkeys escaped from the zoo or something? You know, they, they, were, they were annoyed. They were, you know, because occasionally I would wake up screaming my head off. And um, curiously, uh, talking about this thing being along familial lines, which we kind of, uh, kind of alluded to earlier, uh, while this was going on with me, I had a cousin down in, in northern Arkansas, northern central Arkansas, nowhere near Devil's Den, but same state. Same age as me, and he was seeing two foot tall clowns in his room. And uh, mm. he was flipping out, going crazy and screaming. And uh, what's crazy was he had two uh, siblings, two brothers who slept on bunk beds in the same room with him. And they would never wake up. They right. never saw these clowns. Uh, you know, they'd wake up when the clowns were gone and, and he would scream. Uh, and he came to visit me and we were both eight uh, because what they would do is that, that their family would come down to, they would come up to St. Louis from Arkansas for a week every year in the summer and we would feed and water them. And, uh, you know, the adults would play cards and listen to music and the kids would play together. And uh, that's how people vacationed when they couldn't afford, you know, to go right. to the resort. So, and then, you know, our turn, we'd go back at Thanksgiving and they'd feed and water us for a week and, uh, you know, <laughs> reciprocate. That's, the way, that's yeah. the way it worked. So Gerald and I saw one another for a week every year. And he, um, I knew that he'd been seeing these clowns because it was the big buzz around the family. Terry's got monkeys and uh, Gerald has clowns. You know, my wife made the observation. She said, you know, the uh, E.T. must have liked the, uh, the the circus theme for your family. And I'm like, mm. yeah, that's probably right. So, uh, but he's seeing these clowns and uh, we shared our stories with one another. And unfortunately, um, I thought these things were monsters. I didn't, I didn't associate them with E.T. I didn't know what was going on. Um, but you're a kid. How could you, right? I'm, yeah, I'm a kid. What do I know? My And my yeah. parents thought that they were nightmares induced by watching Space Ghost or, you know, Lost in Space or, you know, some television program. Right. Uh, matter of fact, they took me to a uh, family medical doctor uh, who, who talked to me and uh, asked me to tell him what I honestly saw. And I told him this was shortly after I saw the flying saucer. I was eight years old. Actually, I was nine by the time they took me to the doctor. And the doctor's real empathetic and talks to me and you can trust me, tell me what's going on. And uh, I did. And uh, he calls my dad in and says, well, and, and talks to my dad like I'm not even in the room, right? And says, what we have here is a case of an overactive imagination and probably uh, uh, some kind of uh, influence. What's he watching on TV? And my dad's like, oh, what are you watching on TV? And I told him, uh, first thing came out of my mouth was Space Ghost. And he said, there you go. Doctor said, there you go. That's the cause wow. of your problem. Cut out the Space Ghost and this will all clear out. So you got to lose a show and not be taken seriously at the same time. 
Yeah, I got to go home and from now I'm supposed to watch Three Stooges, you know, mm. healthier TV, right? Yeah, yeah. So hit your I, siblings, yeah. You know, I did for about three weeks, and finally, you know, Mo, Larry, and Curly's on everybody's last nerve, and because uh, we only have one television, you know, and uh, yeah, my uh, if you're going to be punished, the whole family's punished, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So my mom's like, okay, enough of this. Turn the Stooges off. Watch whatever you watch. Just don't watch Space Ghost. I'm like, okay, cool. So what do I watch? And she turned on Perry Mason. <laughs> so I started watching Perry Mason at age eight. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I credit Perry Mason with my uh, career choice that made me want to go to law school. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true, actually. Uh, so it did kind of pan out for you in that sense, yeah. Yeah, it helped me find a direction. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, CT. Come full circle. Yeah. So uh, I'm just curious. So Tobias's intent, you're in, uh, do you guys see these things just disappear? How long does it take before this craft takes off? Or do you see it take off at all? We watched it take off. Uh, yeah. Again, we're like two scared 10 year olds inside this tent. Right. And, uh, after the last two little guys pixelated out, um, this beam of light shut off. And then a second or two later, that droning noise stopped. And it was odd because that droning noise had become the baseline and we really didn't notice it until it got quiet again, abruptly. Right. Right. And then it was dead quiet. And uh, it didn't take off like a spaceship or like a rocket ship. It just lifted off like a hot air balloon and, and it went straight up. And slowly at first, and we watched it, and it was three points of light, and then one point of light, and then gone. And as as it got higher, I think it picked up speed. And how long, like duration, are we talking about here? Probably just 10 seconds, 15 seconds max. Okay, so still rather fast. Still yeah. rather fast. Slow start, but like I said, the higher it got, the faster it went, and pretty soon it was gone. And... We just sat in that tent and trembled. I, I told my friend, I said, I'm not leaving this tent until until daylight. And Which was like, like about an hour later. Yeah, and we had, well, we had no idea if it was 2 a.m. or 5 a.m. Right. So, your, your watch broke. Yeah. So I'm like, no, I ain't, I'm not going out. I was scared to death to run. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. All I had over my head was a piece of canvas, but I felt like it gave me cover. Yeah. And I felt to run from that tent to the car would make me vulnerable. And you know, to this day, I I won't uh, I won't be out in open spaces. I just I'll have a panic attack. So if I, if I got to cut across a field to get from point A to point B, I'll walk around rather than cutting across. So um, it created a fear of fields almost uh, because of that, right? It did. I, I ended up with a couple of phobias. Uh, you know, I'm uh, next Saturday. I'll be sixty six years old. I still sleep with a light on. You know, right. Uh, I sleep with a pistol by my bed. Like that's that's not going to do any good. I know that. No. Yeah. But, but it gives uh, you a sense of comfort or control at least. Right. Yeah. It gives, I think control is probably the issue. It gives me some kind of sense of control, even though I know it's just not real. Right. Uh, I mean, what's the light going to do? Really? I mean, nothing. Uh, but I have to have the door open, have to have the shades drawn, and the curtains drawn. And it's been this way since 1977. Uh, the other phobia that I have is, uh, well, back when there used to be malls, you know, shopping malls. I walked around the corner. My wife and I were Christmas shopping one year. 
and I walked around the corner. We'd split up and there was this uh, brand new store that had a tabletop uh, in front of the window and they were set, they had set up these uh, naked mannequins, uh, female mannequins from the waist up, obviously gonna dress them in blouses and wigs and make them look human. Right. But they have arms extended and they are just, just the fiberglass image. And I walked around the corner, maybe it was just because it was so sudden and I turned my head and I looked at those and I, I took my breath away. And I, it was like looking at uh, the cover of Whitley's book. I, I, I wigged out right. and I had to get out of there. And, uh, you know, I didn't have, this was 1987, I remember the year and I didn't have a cell phone. So I tracked my wife down and uh, we got out of there. Uh, and you I, see that, that even that, the details that you're giving me, this is stuff that people don't talk about. They talk about their, you know, on TV, it's always cut short. You know, what's your experience? Oh, this is the experience. They don't talk about what happens afterwards, the trauma, the things that, especially in your case, because you remember the whole, well, most of what took place. So I could only assume that, yeah, like, how do you go back to reality after experiencing something like that? And That's a very good point. And, and you know, I, I'm glad, I'm glad you bring it up because I think that Toby and I went down there as maybe a couple of teenagers but we came back as adults. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I see that as a bright dividing line in my lifetime between childhood and adulthood. And you know what else is strange that I don't, I couldn't process then and I can't understand it today, but when we went back, um, I'm in a car with Toby and he's navigating me out of there. Uh, and sure enough, he got us out of there in the nighttime. I don't know how, but he did. And we finally came across that chain lane across the road, and I knew we were okay. Um, but we were both hurt. I should mention that. I had the worst sunburn I'd ever had in my life. Um, but I never blistered, and I never peeled. And what's interesting was I was burned under my arms, the soles of my feet, my scalp. I mean, Places everywhere. you shouldn't have been. Yeah, tanning. everywhere. Yeah. Especially I'm if you're wearing boots, right? I'm wearing boots. I'm wearing jeans. I never took my shirt off. Yeah. So, you know, and. Uh, and you're probably like me. You burn in the sun just getting the mail. So uh, at least that happens to me. I go get the mail and I mean, I get a sun burn. Like I burn like crazy. Actually, you know what? I don't. I have just the opposite. I, I can go out and garden or work in the yard and, and the sun never doesn't bother me. So I, whatever they burned us with must have been pretty intense and of course right. toby didn't didn't sunburn um but he was still burnt he was still now, burnt and it was hurting were you, were you worried at the time that it might be radiation exposure you know we didn't we didn't think that far i mean right. we knew we were hurt uh we both had what's called um flash burns to the eyes it's uh it's what an arc welder gets if they don't wear that that hood with, right. the, with, the, with the smoke glass to um, and that's very painful, especially when the light came up, when it dawned, and because uh, you're so photophobic. Yeah. And whatever they did to me, they gave Toby a double dose because he was he was much sicker than I was. Uh, he, there's no way he could have drove us home. Hmm. Uh, I, I had a hard time driving. Um, and what, what changed was, um, here this guy was, nine, nine hours earlier, he's, you know, my best friend, we're pals. You know, his wife, is friends with my wife, uh, on our days off, we'd play cards or uh, volleyball or barbecue or something. Uh, 
And I suddenly didn't want anything to do with the guy. Huh. And I've seen this and heard of this so many times. Uh, I call it when the band breaks up because <laughs> you got a Yoko Ono in there somewhere. Yeah. Man, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I got all these letters from people saying, you know, uh, and I got a, I got a bunch of them in the back of my book and, you know, you can read Ray Fowler's great book, uh, uh, the Allagash four. It talks about Jack and Jim Weiner and uh, their two friends, Mr. Rack. And I forget the fourth guy's name. I always forget his name, but anyway, the four of them were, you know, best friends. They went, uh, you know, they fished together, hunted together, drank together, did, you know, did all the stuff you do with your pals. And uh, suddenly they all drift apart. And I got example after example of that in these 1400, well, at the time I wrote the book, 1400 emails. Uh, And even family members, family members, this, this theme came up repeatedly. uh, And I got a couple examples in the back of the book, family members, would see something crazy. Um, like this guy, Donnell from Chicago, wrote me and told me when he was about 18, uh, he saw uh, his family was out on their, like a back porch and it was incredibly hot that day. So they were out on a porch for some air. They didn't have air conditioning. And they saw this silver blimp in the sky. At first they thought, well, that could be the Goodyear blimp, right? And then as they're watching, they're, it's pretty clear that they're not looking at the Goodyear blimp. Right. And um, they watched it for a while and then it went away. And he said, everybody was suddenly tired. Everybody went in this house. Even the fact that it was 104 degrees, everybody went in the house and went to bed hmm. and nobody talked about it. And it was years later, somebody uh, like you know, Uncle Joe or somebody, you know, the guy, the guy in the family that always says something inappropriate at the most inappropriate time. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's got one. Yeah. And so Uncle Joe says, uh, you know, hey, remember when we saw that thing out the, in the sky back, uh, you know, in the backyard and uh, thought it was a blimp? And he said that everybody around the table was just stunned. Um, they all had forgotten it. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, well, a couple of people said, no, no, I don't remember that. Uh, but, uh, you know, clearly they did. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was weird too. When I started writing this book in, in 2016, I started, I began, you know, doing my outline and uh, I lost a lot of weight um, and I attribute it to, to writing this book. Uh, but I also had this feeling of guilt Anytime I talk about it, I didn't mention that. I should have. Anytime, you know, I talk about it with my wife or discuss the event with anyone, which I never did. uh, I had this feeling of um, like I violated some kind of fiduciary trust. Like I was Hmm. revealing a family secret. I felt guilty. And uh, I dealt with that, you know. The, the guilt, can you explain the guilt? Like you felt guilty that you were betraying somebody or that you felt that you shouldn't be telling anybody? Shouldn't be telling anybody. I felt like somehow I should have known I was doing something wrong. Right. That, that, this, that this wasn't right. This was wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. Um, and I think that, again, was was not human influence. I, I really do. And I, I, I fought against that. And... Uh, because a couple of times I thought, you know, well, 
you know, to hell with this. I don't want to do this anymore. Right. Um, I had an experience and I, I haven't brought this up in a long time. In 2016, I had just started writing the book and uh, my wife knew that I was struggling. Um, and I had some notes and some drawings uh, and the like um, in a file cabinet in the, kind of like my office space. I got up at three o'clock in the morning and I pulled that file, they were in a, a manila file folder. Uh, and then went out to my uh, backyard to my barbecue. And I threw the paperwork in, squirted it down with lighter fluid and lit it a, lit it a blaze. And it went up in a big roar. And my neighbor comes out on the back porch, 2 a.m. And he's yelling, hey, kind of late for a barbecue, isn't it? <laughs> and I didn't answer him. <laughs> uh, and I stood there and I watched it till I went till the fire died down. I shut the barbecue top and uh, went back inside and went back to bed. Woke up the next morning and couldn't figure out why I smelled like smoke. Huh. And uh, I had hit the delete button on my uh, computer and deleted the files. And my wife had them backed up because at this point we were sharing a computer. Right, right. And she had the forethought to back them up. I don't know where she got that idea from, but it saved me a great deal of work. Yeah. Uh, but there were drawings and illustrations and stuff and, and notes that are not there anymore. Luckily, I didn't burn everything. Um, but that's but, crazy that you just had the feeling of like, oh, no, I'm just going to burn all my work that for no reason at 2 a.m. in the morning. I had no memory of it. Huh. I, I, I mean, if my wife, if I, I, I knew that I did that because, you know, I smelled like smoke and, uh, you know, my neighbor told me about it and I went out and the barbecue grill was full of ashes. So I knew you know, it had to be true. And it's nice that you decide to write the book and to explain to people what took place, because I think it's important that one where you worked had a huge thing like near the, the, but here's what's really weird is that usually people that uh, have some sort of experience are related to somebody who worked at a nuclear facility, whether it's bombs or anything like that. It seems like it's, the patterns are there. Like I, I'm even working with somebody now whose father works in some sort of nuclear energy, but that person is an abductee. So it's funny that there's a theme there as well, like just what you did for a living. Question, though. Do you think, uh, since you've had these experiences for quite some time, was it the location that attracted them to you, or was it you that attracted them to the location? It was us. Yeah. I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you why I believe that. It felt like we were keeping an appointment. Oh, wow. I know that sounds crazy, but that that that's... Not, not not at the time, but afterward, yeah. on reflection, it really felt like we were doing what we were supposed to do. We were where we were supposed to be. And, right. Uh, I don't get that. But, you know, just like I don't weeks get my... Weeks in advance, too. Yeah. Right? Because you guys were planning this for weeks in advance, well, yeah. you mentioned. So... Probably 10 that, weeks. That is weird. You know, and, and, you know, Toby making the right call on every on every road... Uh, Leading into the place. Right. Just never haven't been there before. Never have it been camping before. Yeah. And it, and it's not on any map. Huh. That area is not on any map. Where the 
where the parks, you know, you can pick up a map of the park at the kiosk, um, but the map ends where that, and we, you know, we knew we were trespassing, right? but we thought we were going into some kind of nature preserve or something. Um, we thought it was part of the park and we weren't going to leave a mess or burn the forest down. You know, we were responsible. We were kids, but we were responsible. Um, so, yeah. I don't know. And, Very much like keeping an appointment. Yeah. That's really odd because that's not the first time that I've heard that. Uh, it's just Or like somebody, you need to be somewhere. like Or you need to get out of bed and go to your balcony at 2 o'clock in the morning and look up at the skies. And sometimes it's multiple people. It's not just one person. It's an entire family. Or in the case of Toronto, it was an entire city block. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that's pretty mind-boggling uh have you had any other experiences since then or was that really the like the last occurrences for you do you find yourself like a repeat uh, abductee or is that just as far as you know the 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 one and only time et is a repeat offender he is yeah they are um after 1977 i had uh again another 10 years of uh peace and then in 1987, I'm up in Michigan, and uh, by this time I'm working in the law. And uh, in September, it's beautiful. It's autumn in Michigan. Um, and I used to like to take my motorcycle out solo and uh, go for a ride on Sunday mornings. It was kind of a tradition. I'd you know, get up like at seven early, right. you know, dress warm, put on some leather and stuff and gloves and go out for a ride. And I knew... I'd done this a hundred times. I knew the routes I'd pick. I'd had several routes like in my mental playbook to choose from. And I'd always wait till I got onto the street, onto the street to, you know, pick where I was going to go that day. And this particular day uh, I was going through a rural area and it was just, um, it was just a gorgeous day. It was a blue sky with what I call Simpson clouds, you know, those little, white clouds, you know, dispersed evenly, kind of. It was a gorgeous day, and it was cool, and you could smell wood smoke from the first fireplace fires of the year, and I'm cutting through this rural area. I've got uh, like a 100-foot bluff to my left side, um, something left from a glacial thing, probably, and the road kind of wound around. Nice paved road, no cops, you know, no traffic to speak of, and uh, I am coming to a turn and I'm throttling back from about 75 to about 60. And I blinked and I'm on a gravel road doing 30. Hmm. And I thought, man, I must be absent-minded. And I, and I stopped the bike. I pulled down the kickstand, got off and I'm looking around. And I mean, it was a seamless thing. It right. was it was like I was part of a motion picture and somebody cut up, you know, 20 feet of film and spliced the ends back together because it was gotcha. absolutely seamless. And because of that, I, I couldn't, I could not wrap my head around why I got, I was, I, I blamed it on being absent-minded. Right. And I thought, well, I'll turn the bike around and it should take me back to, uh, to pavement. Cause I mean, I'd never take my bike on gravel. It's dangerous. And, you know, I don't want to chip my paint. So, you know, right. Out of character, that. right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I got home and of course, days before cell phones, my wife is in tears. And she says, I was just about ready to call the state police. Where have you been? You know, because I'm, I'm known for being punctual. I mean, I'm on time. If I say I'm going to be someplace, I'll, I'll be there. Right. 
And uh, I said, well, what time is it? I, my, I had my leather gloves on still. I couldn't get to my watch. And, and I just blurted out, what time is it? And as soon as I said that, I could hear the cartoons downstairs on uh, Nickelodeon. And I knew that it wasn't 10.30 or 11. And she says, it's after 12. Where have you been? And I said, it can't be. It, it absolutely can't be. And uh, she's upset. I'm upset. Um, and we finally uh, reconciled. And, uh, you know, that was a, a crazy, uh, crazy event. But I understand how people can have an episode of Missing Time and not even know it. Right. I not even know it. Because so. you dismiss what just happened. It's like, oh, there's a glitch. Okay. And you move on almost like a deja vu and you don't even think twice about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I mean, that was part of the motorcycle. That was part of the object of the exercise, really, was to think of nothing and clear my mind and, right. you know, think about vacation or something other than work. And uh, how far off the main road were you when you were on a dirt road? Like, how, how long did it take you to go back? I was down one mile, one, one mile, mile off off the main road on a farm road. I had like just a thousand acres of uh, late corn. Uh, stalks on my right and well, the same see, on my left. No wonder you're afraid of fields because every every <laughs> single time something happens to you, you're near one. Yeah. 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 I don't blame you. I yeah. don't blame you. Jeez. So where can people pick up The Devil's Den and The Devil's Den, The Reckoning? Where can people go and find your books? Uh, they're, they're on my website or you can go right to, if you go to, um, The Reckoning isn't on my website yet because I'm just, not good at getting that up to date, but they're both available on Amazon. Uh, and uh, they're, they're at two, two separate locations, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, and uh, Incident at Devil's Den. Uh, I've got an audio book for Devil's Den that's very popular. Um, both books are available on Kindle and in a paperback with images and photographs and the like in the back. And do you know if Amazon has it on audiobook as well? It, Devil's Den is on audiobook. Oh, nice. Uh, I did it in my own voice, for better or worse. Uh, but I wanted I wanted to tell it because it's my story. I don't blame you. Yeah. And um, and that seems to be very popular. So Yeah. And Robert Stack is long gone. We can't get him to do no, he'd <laughs> audio be voice. Oh, wouldn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't he? yeah, he would have been awesome. Okay. Well, I thank you so much for your time and uh, coming on and talking to us about your experience, um, because I think it helps out a lot of people that might be in the same position as you that have had dealings or incidences that they just keep quiet. And I think the more people like yourself uh, that come out that, you know, have been vetted and good now that Linda Moulton Howe did all her homework. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, It's good. It's good that you guys are speaking out and, and I'm, proud of you for you know i know i'm a stranger but i'm proud of you for doing that that's not an easy thing to do that's very much appreciated yeah so thank you so much for coming on uap studies well you're you're so welcome oh and and come see me at uh contact in the desert june 25th through 28th it's virtual this year uh but linda molten will be there whitley everybody that's anybody will be there and uh it should be a lot of fun i'm also doing a workshop for experiencers Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Lovelace. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate it. Thank you.